Any Gen Xers out there? Those of you from the late 80s, early 90s, you know that song. That sermon sung by R.E.M. talked about the end of the world. And it comes complete with all kinds of apocalyptic language. Talks about birds and planes and, and hurricanes and earthquakes. It even has a rapture and a government for hire in the lyrics of that song. But the one thing that stuck out to me the most is I remember hearing that song in 1987. The thing that stuck out to me the most was they saying it is the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Now, I heard that song a year before I became a Christian. Now, my family had just started going to church, but I, and we, and in the 80s, if you were in, around churches, we talked a lot about end times. Like, that was so prevalent in the 80s. And so I heard this song by R.E.M., and I'm going, how can you feel fine about the end of the world? How can you think about this world coming to an end and feeling okay with that? Well, today we're continuing our series on the one story of Scripture. And we've come to the end. It's the end of the world. Not as we know it, but as God's going to tell us the way it's going to happen. And so what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been walking through the meta-narrative or the storyline, the plot line of Scripture. And we've been talking about the fact that, that God's Bible, the God's Word, the Bible, tells one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it tells the story of God's redemption of mankind. It tells the story of how God set in motion this plan to make all things right. Everything that was broken in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, God has set a plan in motion to bring about redemption, to bring about restoration. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at this storyline. So just as a, a time of review, the storyline in the Old Testament begins with creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 3 becomes the fall, which is the next plot line of the story. Adam and Eve sin, they fall, they, they disobey God. And then beginning in Genesis 12, all the way through Malachi, we have what are called the covenant promises. Promises that God makes to his people like Abraham and Moses and David. Then we get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find redemption is the next plot line of the story where Jesus Christ came to this earth to be God with us, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he rose again. And through him, through faith in him, we can be redeemed. We can be made new. Then last week, we talked about mission, and that is God's plan for his church, and that we, as the body of Christ, are to be messengers ambassadors of the kingdom and today we get to new creation we we get we finally have made it to the end of the storyline and we've come to the end of the story but here's the reality most people when they begin to think about the end times when they begin to begin to think about the end of the story they don't feel fine do they that's where we can interact like we can have a conversation they don't feel fine do they even Christians don't feel fine. They start reading the final book 
of the Bible, and it, and it kind of freaks them out. Because Revelation is full of a lot of stuff that we don't understand. A lot of stuff that, that we don't grasp. So before we jump into the new creation, what we need to do is we need to talk about the book of Revelation. Just so that we can understand and grasp this book. So we're going to briefly talk about uh, this book because admittedly, Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. But here's what I want you to know. The Apostle John gives us a clue, a very important clue, to understanding this book. Listen to what he says in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 1. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that should that, that, that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels... There is angel to his servant John, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now I want you to notice a few things that, that John says. First and foremost, John says that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's not hiding truth from us. He's revealing truth to us. In other words, the book of Revelation is meant to be understood. God intended for us to understand it. He intended for us to grasp it. But also notice that it was given for his servants. This book, this, this final book in God's story, the book of Revelation, was written not just for first century Christians, but it was written for all of God's people as we await the return of Jesus Christ. But then what's so incredible, John tells us why it was written. Listen to what he says. It was written to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He's saying, this is why I'm writing this book, so that you will see what must soon take place. Ultimately, what God is saying is, I want you to study this book. I want you to know this book. And then he says that it was written to be a blessing to all that hear it and obey it. So God's not hiding truth from us in the book of Revelation. God is revealing truth to us. He's showing us the good and glorious purposes of Christ Jesus. And so I don't want you to be afraid when you study and read this book, but I do want you to understand that a, that a responsible reading of the book of Revelation begins with understanding the genre of the book. We have to understand the type of literature, the type of writing that it is in order to understand it. And that's true in any book, right? If you don't believe me, just go this afternoon to Barnes & Noble and pick up a Caribbean cookbook. And then try to find directions from Barbados to St. Bart's. You'll not only end up hungry, but you'll also end up lost. Why? Because you have to understand the genre of the book. You have to understand the book and the context and the, and the, the type of literature that it is. Well, Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, I know, 
You hear apocalypse. What do you start thinking about? The Walking Dead. Zombies. Nuclear war. The end of the world. As we know it, right? But here's what that word meant in the first century. It meant an unveiling of something. Vastly different than what we think of when we think of apocalypse. It, 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 it means an unveiling of something. Revelation 1.1 says this, the revelation or apocalypsis or unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what that first line in the, in the first chapter of the first verse says. This apocalypsis, this revelation is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. So what Revelation does is it pulls back the curtain of the world that we live in and we see God on His throne. And we see a spiritual battle that is going on, that it has been going on and will continue to go on until Christ returns. It's the battle that this dragon, who we'll talk about in just a few moments, wages war against God and His people. And that's the unveiling that we see, this, un, this revealing. But what we also need to understand, that symbolism is key to understanding apocalyptic literature. Revelation is full of symbolism. And apocalyptic literature uses symbols and, and, and it uses images to stand for something else. For example, the lamb in the book of Revelation is not a literal lamb. Like we know that, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is a lamb. The lamb is a symbol for Christ. And the dragon is not some fire-breathing medieval monster. The dragon is a symbol for Satan. And so the vision of Revelation, is, or they're unique, but the message is very clear. The bad guy, the dragon, loses badly, along with all those who are with him. And the good guy, the lamb, who is Jesus, wins big along with all those that are with him. So why did God not just give us one page in the book of Revelation that just says, Jesus wins? Why didn't he just give us that? Because he wanted to unveil to us, to reveal to us this glorious victory that Jesus has won for us. He wanted to, to put in us a longing and a passion for Christ's return. See, I think part of the reason we don't think about Jesus' return very often is because we don't understand what happens at the end of the story. If we truly understood what happens at the end of the story, we would be longing for Jesus to return. We would be passionate about Jesus returning. I think part of the reason we don't is because we don't understand what happens at the end. Now, I know that was a lot for an introduction of a sermon. So let's dive in, because our purpose today is to focus on the new creation. This new creation that God is bringing about at the end of his story. You see, when Christ returns in majestic power, it will be the culmination of everything Jesus came to accomplish. Think about that. Everything Jesus came to accomplish for us, in us, is going to be brought by this new creation. The whole world will be filled with the glory of the triune God. And the reality is words cannot fully exhaust the beauty and the glory of this new creation. 
Words can't express it. But we're going to try to talk about it. But before we do, we need to understand that there will be, before this new creation, there will be a full and final judgment. Revelation 19 brings us to the point where Jesus Christ returns. We arrive at the second coming of Jesus in Revelation 19. This same Jesus who was humbly born in a manger in Bethlehem. The same Jesus on Palm Sunday entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace, will one day return on a white horse, which is a symbol of war. So there will be, at the culmination of this age, the second coming of Christ. And I want you to notice in Revelation 19, the symbolism that John tells us. In Revelation 19, verse 13, it says this. Notice what Jesus is wearing. It says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So Jesus, on his way to this battlefield, on this way, on this white horse, is already bloody. What does that mean? What John is saying is that the blood that Jesus has on his robe is his own. It's the blood that Jesus shed for you and for me. So John is showing us in this vision that Jesus has already won the victory. He's already defeated Satan. Through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, Jesus has already won the victory. He has canceled our sin debt. And he has overcome the evil one already through his death on the cross. But John also says there is a final judgment that is coming. And on the day that Jesus returns, Satan and evil and sin and death will be destroyed. Here's the apocalyptic vision John saw. That the one in the beginning who was powerful enough to speak the earth into existence, in the end, is powerful enough to speak evil into existence. Listen to what he says. In verse, I want to read verse 15 of chapter 19 again. From his mouth, this is Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, flip over to chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 9. And what it says here is that this, is a, this final battle is a battle that never really is fought. Jesus returns, speaks, and fire consumes the armies of darkness. Listen to what it says in verse 9. And they marched up. These are the, the, the army of, of the dragon. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But listen to this. But fire comes down from heaven and consume them. In the end, the armies of God don't even have to draw a sword. The fire of heaven consumes them and the devil who, was dece- who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Talk about a mic drop of all mic drops. Jesus returns, speaks the word, and all evil is wiped out and destroyed. All sin is taken care of. Death is no more. One thing is clear. 
as you read the book of Revelation, that this glorious triune God that we serve will make all things right. He will bring about this final judgment of the devil and those who follow him. But following that last battle and following that last final judgment, we get a glimpse of this new creation, which is our focus for today. This is the ultimate hope for each and every one of us as Christ followers. This new heaven and new earth, this new creation that Jesus is bringing about. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the first man of the new creation. He is the one that inaugurated this new creation by his redemptive work on the cross, by his sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit upon us. The new creation is here now. The new creation is here now. The kingdom of God is here now. Think about Colossians 2.13. It says this, And you, that's you and I, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God, listen to this, has made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. So what is he saying? He said, you and I are spiritually dead. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are spiritually dead. But what did Jesus do through his redemptive work? He has raised us up to new life in Christ. He has made us new. That's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says this. Therefore, if anyone, any one of us, are in Christ, he is what? He is what? A new creation. The new creation is here and now, and it is in us. The new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So here's what I want you to grasp first and foremost about the new creation. This new creation began in Jesus. This new creation continues through his redemptive work and his transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But the new creation also awaits a final fulfillment. What does that mean? That means that this new creation has already begun, but it's not yet finished. Does that make sense? It's already begun, but it is not yet finished. Now, let's talk about this new creation. Because there's, there's a lot of speculation out there about heaven, right? Like, I just, just for a moment, I, just want to, I want you to think about your own thoughts about heaven. When you think about heaven, what comes to your mind? Just think about it right now. Because we all have different thoughts about heaven. And, we, and we, 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 we have images and things that we think about when it comes to heaven. So just think about those just for a moment. Here, I, I did some, uh, uh, I googled uh, heaven and what heaven's going to be like. Now here are some of the top things that I read that people think heaven's going to be like. It's going to be like playing harps and floating around on clouds. We'll just be up there like angels and float on clouds and play harps. Sounds marvelous, doesn't it? No. You can keep that. But also, even some believers, they talk about heaven being up there, up there in the clouds. They talk about our loved ones being up there looking down on us. Here's a big one. That, that heaven will be like an eternal church service. Like, I can barely keep your attention for an hour and a half. 
Like, think about the entire eternity, where we're just singing, here I am to worship, and kumbaya on an eternal repeat. Just worshiping at the feet of Jesus forever. Now, some of you are going, man, that sounds boring. We can't get you to sing the songs here. We only do four or five of them. And you're thinking about singing songs for all eternity? I don't know about you, but I do hope there is something more. I do. Then we talk, then others talk about heaven is the final resting place. That Christians will live in heaven forever. And when Jesus returns, he's going to come visit the earth, pick us up, and take us up to heaven. Now, to be sure, heaven is a real way of speaking of those who have gone before us. Heaven is a real way of talking about those that have died, that are followers of Christ, and are now in the presence of Jesus. Paul talks about it. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what that means is when you and I die, here's what happens. When we pass away, if we pass away before Jesus' return, what happens is our souls leave our body and they go into the presence of Jesus. Paul talks about this. He, says, he mentions it in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, yes, we are of good courage. In other words, you should be encouraged by this. This should make you excited. He says that we would rather be away from the body. So again, our soul is away from our body and at home with the Lord. And then Jesus tells the repentant thief on the cross. What does he tell him? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, your soul is going to be with me, Jesus, in paradise, in heaven. But listen, listen, I want you to understand this. God's final chapter, what is coming, is even better than all of that. It is. God's ultimate plan is not just about getting you and I to the great beyond. God's final salvation and the reason Jesus came was to restore everything, everything, everything that was broken in the beginning. See, God's ultimate salvation is to restore all that was lost in Eden. Our relationship with God restored. Where you and I can be in the very presence of God. Our relationships with one another restored. And our relationship with creation itself restored. Listen to this final vision John gives of the new creation. If you have your Bibles, flip to Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. And he says, Then, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Let's stop right there. Why does the sea no more? Because in the first century, the sea represented evil. It represented sin. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. John is giving us a vision, a symbol, that evil and sin and death and all that is wrong is going to be eradicated in this new heaven and new earth. Make sense? That's why he says that the sea is no more, but let's go on. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming what? Down. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling 
place of God is where? With man. God is going to dwell with us. Isn't that exciting? God is going to dwell with us. He says that he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. See, the biblical story of this new creation is that Jesus, when he returns, will come down with a new heaven and a new earth to restore all that was lost in Eden. And when he does, this created world, God's world, will be transformed. Notice he's not scrapping everything and starting over. He didn't say, I'm going to make all new things. What did he say in verse 5? I'm going to make all things new. Just like when you and I become a new creation in Christ, he doesn't just evaporate us and start over new, does he? No, he transforms our existing self. And he makes us new. He doesn't give us, he doesn't, he doesn't bring about new things. He makes us new. The same is going to happen in the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. See, here's what I want you to understand. The story of the Bible begins with a physical creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the story of the Bible ends with a new or renewed physical creation. This is the point proclaimed by the entire storyline of Scripture, that Jesus is not leading an evacuation movement. Jesus is not leading a retreat. He's not coming back to take us away. The return of the Messiah is not a relocation plan to an immaterial heaven where we live on clouds and play harps. It is the recreation, the renewal of this good creation that he began in Genesis 1-1. Jesus is coming to renew all that was broken. This broken world that he loves, that he gave his life for. He's coming to renew that. This is the promise of the new creation, that everything will be made new. Church, this is the good news of God's final chapter. In the new creation, we will experience the immediate presence of God. If you go back to Moses and recall, Moses, God told Moses, you cannot look at me. You cannot look at my face. And yet, in the new creation, in the new earth, just like Adam and Eve walked in the presence of God, you and I will be able to walk and live in the presence of God. We will be face to face with God. Listen to what he says again. place, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But I want you to notice the personal touch. Like it says that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
God himself's going to do that. God is going to wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. All of that gone. But not only that, this new creation is filled with God's divine presence. John reiterates it again in verse 23 of Revelation 21. And he says this, And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, in this new creation, we will know God in perfect love, perfect peace, and perfect joy. We will experience perfect truth, justice, holiness, wisdom, goodness, glory, and beauty. In this new creation, we will know one another in perfect fellowship, in perfect community, filled with loving relationships and friendships among God's people. Parties? Oh yes, there's going to be tons of parties. In fact, the Bible uses metaphor after metaphor of banquets and feasts to describe this new creation. It's a staggering thought when you think about the fact that eternity, this new heaven and new earth, a recreated and renewed environment, free from sin and decay, full of commerce and friendship and beautiful nature, all focused on the community of God's people, glorifying their triune God. When we begin to wrap our minds around that church, it should, it should bring about a passion and a longing for Christ's return to usher us into this new creation. Here's what I want you to think about. God's story began in a garden. The Garden of Eden is where God's story began with this pair of happy honeymooners, Adam and Eve, in the beginning, in this perfect place called paradise, the Garden of Eden, in perfect relationship with one another, in perfect relationship with God, and in perfect relationship with God's good creation. They were asked to care for God's good world. They were asked to create and to cultivate, to be image bearers, but they failed. And their failure ushered in sin and death into God's good creation. Our sin continues to usher in death and destruction into God's good creation. But in Genesis 3-5, we see God set in motion this plan. This plan that He has had from the very beginning, before He even created, before the foundation of the earth, Scripture teaches us, that He set in motion this plan to redeem mankind. And that plan is told throughout the storyline of Scripture. Where Jesus Christ's death on the cross is central to this plan. And so God's story begins in a garden, but God's story ends in a city. But not just any city, not a concrete jungle. I want you to notice that this is a garden city. Listen to what Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1 says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, this is the city we're talking about, also on either side of the river a tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And listen to verse 4. And they will see His face. What's been hidden from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God's face will now be known and seen by us. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will, they will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Notice this garden contains the tree of life. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, in Genesis 3, what happens when Adam and Eve sin? They are kicked out of the garden because they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God did not allow them to eat from the tree of life. Why? Because they would have to live for eternity in their sin. So God places angels, cherubim and seraphim, in front of the tree of life to guard it, to protect it so that man has no access to it. But then we see in this new creation, new earth, what's sitting in the center of this garden city? The tree of life. The tree of life. We have been given access to this tree. And this imagery of the, of the tree and of this, of this city should remind us of Eden. God's final redemption of, of the new heaven and the new earth is to reverse the curse of Genesis. If you go all the way back to the beginning of our study in, the, in this meta-narrative, in this storyline of the Bible, it talks about in Genesis how the ground, the earth, was cursed, how the devil was cursed, and how man was held, held responsible and had consequences for their sin. But notice what verse 3 says in Revelation 22. No longer will anything be cursed. Why? Because God has reversed the curse of Genesis. Nothing's, nothing will be cursed anymore. In other words, God is repairing all that was broken in the beginning. God is restoring the new heaven, the new earth. He's restoring Eden, where you and I will have a perfect relationship with God, that we will be able to see Him face to face. We will be His people. He will be our God. We will have perfect relationships with one another. Imagine a community where there's no arguing, no disagreements, where we all get along and actually like each other, not just love each other. Because I've heard y'all say that. I love them, but I don't like them. That's gone in the new heaven and new earth. We love one another and like one another. We're in perfect fellowship, perfect community the way God designed it in the beginning. But not only that, he restores us to this to his own creation, his good creation. As God created, what did he say? It is good. It is good. It is good. And in the end, this new creation, God is going to restore us into a right relationship with his good creation. Heaven and earth were united in Eden. But heaven and earth were separated by the fall. And will be perfectly reunited when Christ returns. 
to complete what he began through his death and resurrection. So the connection between Eden and the new creation is crucial if we're going to understand what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Just as we need to drop the idea of floating up on clouds playing harps, we need to drop the idea of eternity being an endless church service. Yes, Scripture says, we just read it, that worship is the activity of eternity. But worship must not be defined as simply singing. Worship in the new creation is living purely for the glory of Jesus. That's what worship is. Using our God-given gifts for His glory. Doing everything for His glory. Like Paul said to the church in Colossae, do all things to the glory of Christ Jesus. What will the activity of heaven be? It will be doing all things to the glory of Jesus. Heaven, eternity, will be a sacred adventure where we will be allowed to experience and explore and enjoy God's good creation. Just the way He intended us to in the beginning. That's what eternity is going to be like. This whole time, for all eternity, we will be glorifying the one who made us for himself. In everything we do, in our relationships, in, in, in everything. Let me, let me give you an example. Have you, ever, have you ever had one of those experiences where, where you just experience the presence of God and you just glorify God? Not because, of, not because you're singing songs or even praying or even worshiping, but just because you're doing, just being. It could be while you're driving. It could be while you're out on a hike, enjoying nature. It could be uh, in community with friends. Uh, it could be in, in various situations. Have you ever experienced that? Anybody experienced that? You know what that is? That is a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth. You, you, didn't, you didn't feel connected to God. You didn't glorify God because you were worshiping. You glorified God because you were just being in His presence. That's what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. So let's talk about just, some of this may be, you may have never thought about this before, and I think most of us don't think about the new heaven and the new earth very often. And when we think about heaven, yeah, I'm going to be with Jesus, and that's kind of where it ends, right? We really don't think, okay, what is that actually going to be like? So let's talk about a few questions. Will there be, will we know each other in the new heaven and new earth? Absolutely. I firmly believe that we will know one another in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be united with loved ones who love Jesus and have gone before us. We will recognize family and friends in the new heaven and new earth. Jesus is the model. This is his resurrected body. When he appeared before his disciples, did they know him? Yes. They recognized him. And I think it's going to be the same in the new heaven and new earth. But here's the deal. Our relationships will be perfect. You know that crazy uncle that loves Jesus, but he gets on your nerves? Don't mention his name if he's sitting next to you. But you're going to have a perfect relationship with him. We'll have perfect relationships with one another. Another question that comes up, will there be pets in heaven? Did Disney get it right? Do all dogs go to heaven? Honestly, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't tell us. But what it does say, and what we do know for certain, that there in the new heaven and new earth will be populated by animals. In fact, Isaiah prophesied and he said that the wolf... Or he said the predator and prey will live together in peace. He says the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion together will be led by a little child. So in other words, what God makes 
God perfects in the new heaven and new earth. So what God makes in our world today will be perfected in the world to come. And here's what we do know. We do know that God will do what is best for us. Now, the reality is our focus in heaven is not going to be on pets. But wouldn't it be like God? Wouldn't it just be like God in His grace and His goodness to allow our pets to be there? Fido that you love so much, perhaps he's there. And if you have cats, sorry, they're not allowed. Sorry. That's what the Bible says. I can't. I'm just no. No, we don't know, but we do know. We do know that animals will be there, and we do know that God will do all that is good for us in the new heaven and new earth, um, except for cats. But what will we do? What will we do in this new heaven and new earth? We will glorify God in all that we do. What do you love to do? What creative capacities do you have? Think about those for a moment. And think about doing all those things that you love to do. Think about the, the work that you do. Think about the, the, all, the, all the, th- the creative capacities God gives you. I mean, you do realize there will be work, right? Because work, think about this, work was a part of the original Eden. You ever thought about that before? That work was part of God's original design. Work only became work where it became drudgery after the fall. So I imagine a place where we will do the things that we love to do, that we will work without drudgery, that we will build things and create and write and, and, and go on adventures and hang out with friends all to the glory of God. We will create, we will accomplish, we set goals, we will fulfill them, all to the glory of God. We don't become like spirits, we're not disembodied spirits, we're not like angels in heaven. No, we have a physically resurrected body. Our bodies will be new, much like they are now, just only perfect. So maybe not like like they are now. But our bodies will be like Jesus' resurrected body. Think about that moment when Jesus appears to his disciples. And we know Thomas. We pick on Thomas a lot. But what does Thomas say? He says, I want to see the hands and the scars. So what does Jesus do? Shows them to him. But Jesus' body was resurrected. It was, it was perfected. And our bodies, too, with the re- when we are resurrected, when our bodies are resurrected, they will be perfected. I don't know what all that looks like. Scripture doesn't tell, but it does tell us that we will have new resurrected bodies. And they will be the best possible form our bodies could possibly be. We will eat and drink, maybe even play sports, who knows. But all of it will be done for the glory of God. We'll meet fascinating people. Think of all the believers that have gone before us. Think about meeting Abraham and Moses, even Adam and Eve. And say, why? Why? Why did you eat that tomato? I don't understand why you ate that tomato. See, y'all thought it was apple, right? It's not. It's not. No, I'm just kidding. But, but think about meeting those that have gone before. Think about meeting Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon or Sir Isaac Newton. Whoever you think of as a follower of Christ, think about having conversations with them, knowing them. We will glorify God in ways that surpass our wildest dreams. Every moment of eternity will be full of new places to enjoy, 
new things to discover, and new joys to experience. Have you ever thought about it that way? We'll be able to do as we wish and go where we wish without wondering if what our wishes, if, if what we're wishing for is wrong. Because now sometimes we don't know. But in heaven, that won't be the case. Nothing, nothing will hinder us from communing with God. Nothing will hinder us from being in His presence. We will possess boundless energy to love God, to serve God, to know God. I believe that we will, I personally believe that we will do many of the things in heaven, in this new heaven, new earth, that we do here on this earth. We'll just do them perfectly. And we'll do them all for the glory of God. And throughout eternity, we will live fully, truly human lives the way God intended from the beginning, where we will be able to explore and manage God's creation to His glory, just like He designed for Adam and Eve to do before the fall. And University of Georgia will win the natty every single year. And that's where y'all applaud? No, I'm just kidding. You should. So, let's wrap up with this. How, how do we get there? How do we experience this new creation, this new heaven, this new earth? How do we spend eternity in God's new creation? Listen, it's not because you deserve it. Because you don't. It's not because you've done anything or could do anything to earn it. Because you can't. No, it is solely because of God's sovereign grace. He is the one who has chosen us. He is the one who has redeemed us in Christ. He is the one who has made us alive through His Spirit. God's new creation is reserved for all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That Lamb, as we talked about earlier, is Jesus. He is our salvation, and we receive Him by faith. Revelation says that He was slain, and by His blood He ransomed the people for God from every tribe and every language and every people, and every nation, and He has made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and we shall reign on the earth forever. Think about that, church. There's never been a more happy, more encouraging end to the story than what we see in the new heaven and new earth, this new creation where God's people, all of God's people are in God's perfect place under God's immediate rule fulfilling our God-given purpose for all eternity. Church, may we long for that. May that become the desire and hope and longing of our soul. As the, bride, as the bride awaits for her groom, we await the return of Christ Jesus. And as we do, let's cling to the parting words of Christ in this final book of Scripture. And He says, Look, I am coming. He will return. And when He does, He's going to usher in this new heaven and new earth. But here's what I want to close with. I want to close with this thought. Because we've tried to describe it today. But here's the way Paul described it. He says, What no eye has seen, 
No ear has heard, nor the heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. So though we've tried to describe it, though we've tried to talk about it, it is beyond our imagination. It is beyond our comprehension. But it is going to be the renewal of all that was lost just the way God intended it in the beginning.